Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Good evening, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, strict new entry rules for Brits travelling to Europe will come into force next year. Uh, some think they'll create huge queues. I don't think so. Uh, 80% of NHS dentists will have to shut their doors to new patients with DIY dentistry. Shockingly common, apparently. And it comes as MPs are set to get a pay rise of £6,000, which is apparently in line with inflation. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, festive edition. They say Christmas is a time of giving, uh, but it sure doesn't feel like it. If anything, it seems far more like a time of taking. We've got junior doctors starting a two-week strike tomorrow, which will cripple the NHS over Christmas and the New Year, all because they are still insisting they want a 35% pay rise to make up for how little money they've made for the last decade. Propaganda at best and impossible to attain. Even Labour said they wouldn't give it to them if they got in. Meanwhile, we've got senior civil servants walking out of their jobs with six-figure payouts from taxpayer funds just for retiring from those well-paid jobs, costing us hundreds of millions of pounds. And as if all that wasn't enough, guess who else is getting a pay rise? That's right, it's our own very much elected representatives, our MPs, who will soon be earning over £92,000 a year each. Not bad for what some see as a part-time job in London. Coming up tonight, we'll be finding out why the Scottish National Party thinks it's a great idea to take more money off people with a new higher income tax ban for people earning between 75 and 125,000. And I'll be asking why the size of the state seems to be growing rather than shrinking. When you hear what they're doing in Dundee on The World Awoke, you'll be astonished. But it is a serious question. Why has this country become such a ridiculous joke of a nation? A place where wrongdoers don't get punished, where the guilty are set free, where illegal migrants are handed money shortly before being driven to bars and nightclubs in our towns and cities, where anti-British marches are permitted to take place every weekend in our capital, and where our elected representatives seem incapable of doing anything other than looking after themselves. It's time to take stock, ladies and gentlemen, because we now know there is definitely going to be an election in 2024. In less than 12 months, we will have a new government. My common sense tells me it won't be much different from the one we've got now. If anything, it might be worse. But the truth is, we have all lost faith in our leaders, both local and national. We've lost faith in our country because it's been so badly stewarded for so many years. So tonight, I want you to tell me what we're going to do. I've got a few ideas which I'll share with you over the next two hours. But let's wake up, let's smell the coffee or the tea, whichever you prefer, and let's find some answers. Because this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. So tonight, I'm actually asking you, how do we fix Britain? Get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones as well, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. We've got some breaking news now. Um, because a by-election is going to take place in Wellingborough after 13.2% of the electorate backed a petition to recall MP Peter Bone, who was found by Parliament to have subjected a staff member to bullying and sexual misconduct. He denies the allegations. 
of course. But sticking with Westminster, uh, it was a combative end to the parliamentary year for the Prime Minister as Rishi Sunak was grilled by senior MPs over his Rwanda migration plan and when he will succeed in stopping the boats. There isn't a firm date on this because I've always but been clear said, from the beginning. You I said, said you'd going to stop the boat, so I just want and, to know and what And we the will date keep is. going until we do. Okay. But this is not one of these things where there's a precise date. You don't have a date. It. Um, it, this is something where, before I took this job, they had only ever gone up. Okay. And now they're down by a third. Yeah, so they're up, they're down, they're up. Down. I don't know. Uh, let's introduce the panel. Henry Hill from Conservative Home is here tonight. Uh, writer and broadcaster Ember Wolfe, welcome. And Deputy Political with the Sun, Ryan Saby. Great to see you all. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I'd prefer to call you a cast of characters rather than a panel. Panel sounds a bit boring. So um, I guess we should kick off with the Peter Bone story, which broke literally just a few minutes ago before we started. Ryan, let me, let me kick off with you. I mean, another by-election for Rishi Sunak? I mean... Is this going to be the parliament? I, I know I tell you, I always ask you these questions to put you on the spot. Is this the parliament that's had more by-elections than any other parliament? It must be. Uh, they're pretty much up there. I think there was a, some, a survey done or some analysis done just the other day that one in 20 MPs had been either suspended or they'd lost the whip. So right. it seems like the, you know, if someone wants to call it the parliament of, of rogues, it seems to be that one. But this is kind of the headache, the nightmare that um, Rishi Sunak didn't want going right. into the new year. He's got to Christmas. Thought he'd done the uh, liaison committee, got through that and put his feet up tonight. But now he's got this recall petition. And again, you look at that Wellingborough seat, big, big majority of about 18,000 or yeah. so. You look what um, the recent by-elections they'd lost, uh, Selby, mid-Bedfordshire. It just adds to that growing problem for Rishi Sunak. Mm. And he's promising, isn't he, that we have an election um, Emma, this, uh, this year, well, 2024, I should say. Mm. Said it last night in Downing Street. So, I mean... Why is Britain in such a bad state, I suppose? It's a big question. That's the answers I'm looking for tonight. So you want the answer to broken Britain, how yeah. do we fix it? Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I don't have You've got that. two hours. <laughs> no, it's... Yeah, I really, I really do I think... I mean, I'm not we're wrong, in a, though, We're I? in a terrible state, and I yeah. know it's easy to say it didn't used to be like this, mm. but did it really used to be this bad and this broken and everybody on strike and trains not working and, you know, hospitals yeah. facing yet another catastrophic winter? It feels like... And also, everybody's morale just feels like yeah. everybody feels... I think the cost of living crisis has gone on and on. We're back in winter again. Parliament is doing yeah. absolutely nothing. I mean, if this by-election is early, I don't know how early in the new year it, it will be, but, mm. I mean, if this comes around at the same time as he's defeated, at, you know, facing more Rwanda problems, yeah. it could be a really bad start to 2024 yeah. for Sunak. Well, Rwanda's certainly not going to be the answer, is it? Henry, in terms of what it's, what, whether it's going to work or not. I mean, he was, they were pressing him today on when is it happening? And he's going, well, of course, I can't say. And they go, well, yeah, but you said you were going to get people onto planes. Uh, have you got any deals with any plane companies? No. I mean, you know, he's never going to win this it's one, is he? It's just a farce. It's ridiculous. No, the, 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 Rwanda is, is absolutely not going to be what decides the general election. He, right. he has to talk about it effectively because he's realised he can't run on anything other than immigration. Mm. But he can't run on immigration, legal immigration, because no. it's tripled since right. the Tories came in in 2010. With his help? Yeah. In, in 2010, it was 257,000 net immigration. Yeah. That was a record. Yeah. Last year, it was 745,000. Right. So he can't talk about that. So he right. has to talk about Rwanda. But even if the Rwanda scheme worked, and you got a few hundred, maybe even a couple of thousand people to Rwanda, that is a tiny fraction of the yeah. number of people we're, that we're actually right. having come over. So I suspect what will actually happen is if he gets the Rwanda bill through in some kind of viable form, he'll probably go for an election in May before yeah. we have the summer and people realise yeah. it doesn't realize work. realise that none of it works but, because he's also snookered himself in a way because he can't any longer blame lefty lawyers and courts and the ECHR because he supposedly ruled all that out. He's basically said, oh, we can get around all that. 
But what you, he can blame, and who he probably will blame, is the House of Lords. Because yeah. I suspect what will actually happen is the House of Lords will amend this thing to death. Mm. Uh, he will refuse to accept those amendments because they will ruin the bill. Right. And then he'll lose the bill in March. Um, it's called double insistence. The House of Lords will block right. it. And then he'll be able to spend the whole year going, if only the Lords hadn't blocked right. it everything would have been fine. <laughs> it is how, mad, isn't it? How, how stupid does he really think the British public is? It's like Michael Gove popping up this morning and saying, oh, I'm going to build three... I'm going to yeah. allow... <laughs> I'm going to not allow, but I'm going to take away the restrictions right. for 300,000 new homes to be built. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my, I'm, we're my, not idiots. We no. know electioneering when we them? see it. Right. If this round of thing, if a plane ever took off any runway, yeah. um, how much would it have? Got? Everybody knows it would have cost hundreds of thousands mm. per person yes. to get rid of these few these few migrants mm. over to Rwanda. Yeah, it's just it is. All, none of it about, makes the sense. The thing about the despair that you speak of. I mean, I was around in the seventies, which I doubt any of you were. And, you know, when there was kind of, you know, national strikes and there was bin, uh, bins not being emptied and there was rubbish piling up in Leicester Square and people couldn't get buried, there was nothing like the despair there is now because people felt like it was a sort of blitz spirit and they thought, well, we'll just have to get on with it. You know, I sat at home with my parents in candlelight, you know, for most of the night. We had one hour of electricity to have dinner. I mean, it was ludicrous. For like three months, we lived like that. The coal miners were on strike, the power stations were on strike, but we all kind of went, yeah, we're going to get through it. But whereas now it's kind of like nothing works. There was works a kind of pride in the country. There whereas was. Now I don't think there but is. But now you go from you know people who travel by train who can't get a train on time, can't get to where they want to go, get in, in a car and there's traffic jams everywhere, trying to get a doctor's appointment, can't get one. And we're going to have people on saying they're pulling their own teeth out. You're kind of going, <laughs> what the hell's going on? Yeah, I think with, when it comes to Rwanda as well, why is he putting so much political energy into this one yeah. policy? Which you isn't know, going to work. What else, which, what else, which we all know. He, talk about? He, yeah. can't, he can't talk about legal immigration. He can't talk about wages. He can't talk about economic growth, even discounting any of that. So he can't talk about the NHS. He can't talk about public services. He can't talk about trains. Like, what do you talk about if you're trying to put together a conservative election campaign? Like, you've got your pensioners, right? You've looked after them. You've bent the entire economy around looking after them. They're fine. But everyone under the age of 55, there was a poll out from YouGov today. Tories are always used to be yeah. like home ownership, right? right? Home ownership made people Tory. Yes. They are four points ahead with people who've paid off their mortgages. Right. And they are 20 points behind with people who have mortgages. Mm. Right. That's how little, how And the small. rest of the country can't even get on the yeah, housing ladder. Yeah, renters, they're like 35. Anybody... But, but, but the, the, the Conservatives have destroyed the social base yeah. of the party. And they don't have a good economic story to tell right. a winning coalition. And, and, and the traditional kind of Tory, you know, go-to issues like law and order is completely knackered. You know, there is no justice system that works. You know, there's documentary after documentary about even police who actually manage to arrest people complain that they can't ever get them to court. And if they do get them to court, they never get sentenced. If they do happen to go to jail, they're let out before they should be. And every whole... single one of us yeah. has a story of we've been burgled, we've been yeah. harassed, we've been this or that. We've reported it, we've got a number, we've got a crime right. reference number, and nothing has ever been right. done. Everybody is, knows. And when, they've only been in for th when they've been in for 13 years, there's only one, one party to blame. Yeah. And that's why you get people like... I mean, we you can't really blame it all on Nick Clegg or not, the, not the Labour now. Party. So, well, when we inherited it, when there was no money. And I mean, you know, they've been trying that for a while. But on prison, on, on justice, um, and the, there's one through line you had to pull, there were many, but one mm. through line for what's wrong with this country yeah. is that we don't build anything. Right. The reason all of the sentencing nonsense happens is prisons. Yeah. We don't have enough prison places. No. When the government announced, they recently announced last, they announced earlier this year that they're gonna, they were going to raise the amount of time you had to wait before you could be eligible for early release yeah. from half your sentence to two-thirds your sentence. All that meant was that the, the prisons crisis got right. worse, right? Because they didn't create a single extra prison place. Yeah. I've spoken to people in government who say, we need about 20,000 extra places. Yeah. But whenever you try and build a prison, the local 
Tory MP would be like, not here, not in my yeah, constituency. Right. That's the issue. Yeah, nobody wants a prison. But they're quite happy to say they're going to build houses. But why are they not saying... But they're not going to build those houses. But why are they not saying they're going to build prisons? I mean, because if you're not going to build houses, you say you are. You're not going to do anything about migration, but you say you are. Why can't they just start saying, we're going to build more prisons, even though they're not going to? Well, they, but they probably I know, were. Sort of they, they probably jeopardy. were in 2010. But yeah. like, it's, 2030, it's 2023, no one will believe Are they that. just knackered, then? Is that, what, is that where we are? I is think, no... I think I said you that were they... talking about William, what William Hague said yeah. the other day. But, yeah, William Hague said, look, they may never get back into power. You right. lose it this time. That's the Conservative And you just Crikey. wonder whether, is, you know, Rishi Sunak, is he that prime minister who, you know, instead of losing by 120 uh, seats, you lose by 65, so yeah. you're in the game next time. Right. So you just wonder... Is um, that what he's what, playing for, do you think? You, 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 that, could, that could be a tactic. You know, he looks, he's looked at the opinion polls, 20 mm. po a consistent 20-point um, yeah. poll deficit, you know, means something. I mean, some of that may be soft, yeah. but... You know, it's only going one thing. direction. I mean, Henry, you'll know this, these figures probably. I mean, there is a possibility that Keir Starmer doesn't get a majority. He wins a minority government, right? I mean, in theory. Mm. Uh, in reality, the, the polling deficit is, absolute, is absolutely it's right. hard to say how bad it is. And also, the Tories behind on every issue. In 1997, that defining defeat for the yeah. Conservatives, they were ahead on defence. They were ahead on yeah. immigration. They're not ahead on either of those points. I think the bigger problem for Keir Starmer is that he doesn't have an answer either, right? right. The, the Tories have rolled £30 billion worth of unfunded spending cuts since mm. the 25-6 fiscal year, right? So he comes in, year one, taxes are already very high. He has to find £30 billion of cuts or tax rises. He doesn't have any answers apart from maybe building some houses, which he might do. And then we still haven't fixed it and we've kicked out the government. Yeah. That's the real problem that we face. In three or four years' time, we might be here going, well, we threw them out and nothing changed. And nothing Henry, changed. where are those Conservative voters going to go? Where are the people that cannot, cannot, even holding their noses, cannot vote Labour? Well, are they going to go on? Yeah, they're going to stay at home. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it's going to be massively low. You live and breathe this yeah. stuff. It's yeah. like, you're like, where am I? Do I vote reform or whatever? But there are loads of people who just don't vote, won't vote, especially if you go long and it's November next yeah, year, yeah, it's yeah. cold and dark and you don't like the government, you don't like Labour. Yeah, you just don't. You, loads of people right. just won't vote. But is that also it's the problem? It's a horrible position but, to be in, yeah. not voting when you believe in voting mm. and you really have nowhere yeah. to put that vote. But also, is it the fact that people have just given up, as I said at the top of the show, with the leaders of this country, with the leadership of this country, and they don't think there's anything worth voting for because there isn't but why should we vote if there isn't if we don't feel inspired yeah. or motivated right. or even but, believe or even believe any right. of them in in defense of our leaders a little bit they are responding to like what voters want like the problem we have you compared it to the 70s in the yeah. 70s i think i obviously wasn't there you had a problem in that britain wasn't working but an awful lot of the reasons it wasn't working were like quite popular there was yeah. that post-war consensus yeah we have the same thing right like people do not want us to build houses. Mm. They don't want us to build railways. They don't want us to build reservoirs or prisons. They don't, you know, there, there's no real incentive to, you know, we want to bring down net immigration, right? But we don't want to pay for people to have children and we need mm. someone to pay for all of those pensions. But if you poll the British, the British public, they'll be like, well, people shouldn't have kids they can't afford. Well, fine, OK, then you have to import people to pay those taxes. So... Yeah, does anybody really believe that those people were importing are paying any taxes at all, which are worth a well, fag I mean, end? I mean, I mean, I mean, they're not, a, are they? a, a, a lot of them are. The dependents they're bringing in are. Yeah, but, yeah, but the, the, net, the, net, the net sort of result is that, that we're paying them more than they're paying us. But we need... <laughs> We need working age. We need working age people. We yeah. need enough working age people to pay for the NHS, social yeah. care, and pensions. And the fact is, there are not. In, there were never. We, the previous generation did not have enough kids to do that. There are not enough working age people. There are even fewer kids now because we've priced childcare as a luxury good, yeah. and housing is incredibly expensive. Like, like all of these things are the result of policy decisions. Well, the bloody country is full. Popular. It's full of people. It's and loads of people are not working. That's the other problem. Yeah, There's millions good. of people who are not working, who could be working, uh, and if they were working, they would provide a lot more money for the Exchequer. But we'll have to come back to this. This is good. Um, 
cement we're getting some answers. We are finding our way through the maze of problems. We will get there. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's a bad time for the NHS, as we said. 80% of NHS dentists brushing off new patients and doctors are on strike. I'll speak to the people at the heart of the National Health Service. Coming up next. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Still asking you the question, how do we fix Britain? Call us 0344-499-1000. But to another disaster, and it's the NHS, which is quite literally crumbling around us. Research has shown that over 80% of dentists won't take new patients. So if you've got a cavity or an abscess, tough, apparently. Worse still, 72% of these dentists won't even take on new child patients. Joining me now is the chair of the British Dental Association's General Dental Practice Committee, Sean Charlwood. Welcome, Sean. Good to see you. Thanks for joining Hello, us. Um, this has been a sort of running sore, if you like, in the, uh, the dental business for quite a long time. Um, I must have had at least five or six mm -hmm. uh, uh, goes at interviewing either yourself or some of your colleagues in the business um, who all tell me that, you know, the government's sort of application to dentistry has never been good enough. The amount of money they pay dentists via the NHS is not enough. Um, many dentists decide to go private. But it does seem to be reaching sort of critical mass at the moment with, I mean, I know people who tell me their kids have been, you know, de-dentists, I don't know if that's what you call it, uh, knocked off a, a national health, um, you know, role that they used to be on and they just get told, well, sorry, we can't do it anymore. Uh, you'll have to go find somewhere else. And then they can't find anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right, Mike. This is not a new problem. Uh, we've been talking, myself, my colleagues, we've been flagging this up for over a decade. Um, the Nuffield Trust today has said that NHS dentistry faces the gravest crisis in its history, and they are not wrong. Mm -hmm. And this report, it reads really like the last, last rights for NHS dentistry. And the government has offered lots of bold ambition and words, but, you know, no, no action, certainly not the ambition and the pace of action that's required to fix this problem. And, you know, before we get into the detail, I think it's worth knowing that we spend a smaller share of our health budget on NHS dentistry, on state dentistry, than any other European country any European country. So not just the Frances and the Hollands and the Germanys, but any European country. Yeah. And it, traditionally, we've only funded care for about half the population. That's what government has done. And the service has rumbled on for many years from one crisis to another. But of course, we've got a growing population. You were just touching that uh, on in your debates before the break. Yeah. And so the the amount of funding that is allocated to NHS dentistry has declined significantly in the last decade. And with a growing population and you know, more and more need for oral health care, we have the crisis that we have. Mm -hmm. and, and we have lots of words, um, lots of promises. But actually, when it comes to expanding the service, um, we're just not seeing the ambition. Can you put a figure on the uh, decline in funding in terms of how much per head of the population has been yeah, taken so, away, uh, if you like? Because, I mean, I know people now that go to Bulgaria to go and get their teeth yeah, done, particularly yeah, if I they mean, need we're getting, cos cosmetic surgery. We're getting, we're getting dental tourism yeah. uh, where people are going abroad to uh, actually access dentistry. 
And of course that comes, I, I wouldn't suggest that. I understand why some people do, but I certainly wouldn't recommend it because if you, if you develop any complications and you're back in the UK, that's a difficult thing to sort out. Yeah. So um, somebody said to me the other day that they actually think access to, to state dentistry is better in the Ukraine, mm. even with the current conflict going on yeah. in areas of, Ukraine, where conflict isn't impinging, access to dentistry there is better than it is in many parts of this country. I mean, that's a disgrace, yeah, and it, it really can't is. be right. And, I mean, I talk a lot about the NHS and its woes, and, and you and I might disagree on, on how it's funded, but there's a lot of money in the NHS. A lot of money is given to the NHS. I mean, could the NHS not allocate more money to dentist care and dentistry? Yeah, I mean, I, I the allocation to dentistry has declined in the last decade, um, and in terms of inflation, by about £500 million, according to the Nuffield Trust. Yeah. So that was their figure this morning, a drop of £525 million since 2014, once you've taken account of inflation. And you can see why the system is under stress. This isn't because dentists want to leave the NHS. Traditionally, dentists have worked within the NHS. But when you're carrying out dental treatment, which is expensive to deliver, as you can imagine, all healthcare is expensive to deliver, when you're actually receiving less through your contract than it costs to deliver the service, you can see why ultimately dentists are forced to leave. It's not because people want to leave the NHS, mm. they just can't continue to run their practices as they want to. And as I say, we only have enough service provided, commissioned to the British population to see broadly one in two of them. Yeah. So when when the minister and the secretary of state say they want NHS dentistry to be available to every patient that needs it, we need to see some, some action in terms of funding, and particularly around the contract, which the Health Select Committee back in the summer described as unfit for purpose. It set out a clear roadmap to deliver change, positive change in the NHS so that your viewers can start to access NHS dentistry again. Mm. And the government last week ducked that commitment once again. So they are not committed to fundamental reform mm. of the dental contract. And we see no evidence of increased funding as well. And as you well recognise, without funding, how can we see more and more patients? We just can't do it. Yeah. And is there any sort of uh, hit being taken by the recruitment uh, situation as well? I mean, are people still becoming dentists or is this putting them off? Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean the, um, the de dental dentistry is still a very popular course to, to sign up for. You know, there are, it is a difficult course to get into. So we're taking, you know, our best and most motivated and most able 18-year-olds and the problem is that we're throwing them into a system that really isn't fit for purpose. Mm. And many of these younger dentists are then saying, this isn't really the way I want to deliver dentistry. I can't deliver dentistry in the way which I've been taught. And they'll stay in NHS dentistry mm. for a number of years and then they will move out of it. Yeah. And this really, this access, access crisis for your listeners and your viewers is really a workforce crisis because... If dentists are leaving, they're not being retained in the NHS dental service for the reasons I've outlined, and they're not being recruited for the reasons I've outlined, you can see how there's an access problem. 
Yeah, absolutely. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much uh, indeed. We will see you some more you. Uh, very soon. Sean Charlwood, the chair of the British Dental Association's General Dental Practice Committee. We have the same argument and the same conversation with dentists and their representatives pretty much every time we do it, and nothing seems to change. But this is all happening while junior doctors are carrying out yet another load of strikes, starting from 7 o'clock in the morning tomorrow through to the 23rd, the day before Christmas Eve. Uh, and that's just before the second lot come in the new year. Um, health chiefs are warning this latest round of industrial action will cause major disruption within the NHS. What's left of it, of course. Meanwhile, MPs are bracing themselves for, a, get this, a £6,000 pay rise, apparently in line with inflation. Joining me now is the former NHS Trust Chair, Martin Gower. Welcome uh, to the newly improved Independent Republic, Martin. Good to see you tonight uh, uh, in the evenings. Um, you and I haven't spoken for a while, but we've basically got a two-week strike starting tomorrow, haven't we? As far as I'm concerned, taking it up to Christmas Eve for the first three days, then going all the way through to sort of Boxing Day, then you suddenly get into just before New Year, and then suddenly there's another strike on the 3rd of January for a week. So I would say that the NHS is pretty much going to be out of commission for the next two weeks, isn't it? Yes, it looks very good for some of them for their skiing holidays and yes. spending more time with their family Verbier over Christmas. is going to be busy as hell. And the NHS is going to be as busy as hell in, in many many places, not everywhere, but in many places. I mean, Mike, first thing first, um, I do feel for the people who will be impacted by this, people who are are ill and sick and, and need care and are not going to get it. Yeah. Um, I really feel for them, and I see the strike as a strike against them. It's done as much to hurt the patient as anything else. And, you know, the BMA should hang their heads in shame. Uh, th this is a disgraceful strike. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a very poor action. We know why they're doing it. It's to further try and undermine the government. I mean, that's what, what it's really all about. Um, it's, a, it's a sad and bad time uh, for the medical profession. And as far as the NHS is concerned, I mean, I've been doing a lot of study work on the NHS I'm uh, giving some talks and, and presentations around the place in the next few months. And, and do you know, I think the chances of it surviving in any like its present form is zero. I think that's for the birds. I really do. Well, exactly right. As we were just hearing from, from our dental representative there, you know, there isn't the capacity in the dental business in the NHS to work out how many people can actually be seen. And you can't see enough people uh, uh, if you're an NHS dentist. It's going to be the same for the NHS in general, isn't it? People are just going to stop going to GPs. They're going to get private GPs. They're going to get private health insurance. And they're going to, health insurance is going to become a thing that more and more people have. Well, it is. And I, th I think there's, there's two things there, Mike, really. One is that um, no other country <coughs> runs the, an NHS like we do. Um, there's never been exported effectively. People don't want uh, an NHS or anything like it. And, you know, the biggest single difference is that nobody, all the, even the people Sean was talking about, dentistry, that's, that's not being funded from general taxation. It really isn't. Mm. Um, France, Germany, they don't fund from general taxation. Uh, now, they, they, they both have uh, compulsory insurance schemes, um, which are part funded um, by the private and public sectors. And many of them wouldn't include, for example, dentistry. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the other thing is, I think the NHS, it's like so many of the public services, I was listening to your programme for the last half hour since it started, and, and there's a lot of places where 
we know things aren't working. And I think the biggest cause of that is that they're just not focused on the real job they need to do. Um, if you get uh, some, some minutes or you can listen in to an NHS board meeting, you'll find they talk about all sorts of stuff, but kind of don't spend a lot of time worrying and, and, spend, and committing themselves to what they need to do to their core business. No. And we've, we've seen all the equality and diversity stuff. I mean, I don't think that's costing the NHS a massive amount of money. I think it's about 800 uh, champions of, of equality and diversity. But actually, it, it is a diversion for the people who lead it. it it's, it's something that, that shouldn't be a priority right now. Um, there's plenty of laws to protect people uh, who feel that they've been um, in, in, in any way um, treated poorly because of their yeah. race or their sex or, or anything. So we, we need the NHS, for, for what it's worth, to concentrate on the job. But really, the idea of funding your health service from general taxation simply doesn't and never will work. Nobody else is doing it. Australia does it a bit, maybe 50-50. But if you take the case in Germany, if, you've, if, you, if you have over a certain salary, I think it's something like 70,000 euros a year, you have the choice of opting out, completely mm. out of the state system uh, or, of the, or of the local, the, lo the state uh, contribution, yeah. the insurance contribution, and, and going privately. Um, we have no choice about anything. No. And the dentistry thing, I'm, I have an NHS dentist. Um, they're very, very good. They're very helpful. But actually, will that last forever? I don't know. Well, it won't, because I was told by my NHS dentist, uh, basically, I should go private when I wanted something particular yeah. done. And that was what I ended up having to do. But talking of diversity, Professor Carol Sikora tweeted this out earlier today. I spent 40 years, over 40 years in the NHS, many of those as director of cancer services at Hammersmith Hospital. With, we treated all with care and respect, regardless of skin colour or background. Staff were hired on merit. Patients were treated equally. And it was all done without a single diversity officer in sight. Uh, and that, I think, tells you uh, all you need to know. But, listen, thank you very much indeed. We'll be talking again, I'm sure, to Martin Gower over the course of the next week or so, because this is where uh, the NHS is doing itself such terrible damage, because we know that almost one million appointments have been lost as a result of all of these strikes that have been going on for the last year, more or less, um, and cancer appointments in particular um, have been um, done away with at, to the tune of something like 50,000 and there will be more cancer appointments. So if you're involved in that, if you've got an appointment being cancelled, uh, do let us know, 0344 499 1000. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham in a Talk TV exclusive. The father of James Bolger tells Talk his son's killer's parole was mental torture. Question is, should child murderers ever be allowed parole? We'll discuss that next. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. And we bring you some breaking news now. And the royal family are set to start the new year with yet another fresh controversy. A New York court has ruled that detailed evidence of groping claims against Prince Andrew should be unsealed and revealed in 14 days' time. The files are set to lay bare more details about the prince's encounters with Joanna Schoberg, including claims that he groped her at a party at Jeffrey Epstein's New York mansion. Dozens of Epstein's high-profile associates are also set to be named as part of the release. And Prince Andrew, of course, has always denied the allegations 
against him. We'll bring you more details on that story a bit later on uh, in the show. Moving on, though, uh, one of Britain's most notorious juvenile killers was up for parole earlier this month. You'll remember John Venables was just 10 when he brutally tortured and killed tiny two-year-old James Bulger in 1993. He will now spend at least another two years in prison after parole chiefs deemed he was still a danger to society. And his victim's father hailed the parole board's decision to keep his son's ticking time bomb killer behind bars. Here he is, speaking to Talk TV exclusively. I've always been under the belief of he wants to commit again. And he's just waiting for his chance. So, And he's been let out twice, as Sarah uh, said in the introduction, yeah. and, and has been recalled to prison twice. And like I say, he, he knows how, how to lie, lie to them, because that, that he was taught to lie to hide his identity, so he knows what he's doing. I mean, for you, this is effectively a life sentence, isn't it? Yeah. Because every two years, yeah. you are going to go back through this process, well, it's just mental wondering torture. whether he's going to be yeah. released. What impact does that have? It's around? just mental torture, isn't it? It's, it is what it is. But uh... are you almost oblivious, sanitised to it by now, because you've had it for thirty years? Well, I'm just used to getting doors slammed in my face. To be honest with you, so it's just you get a bit thick. Thick skins. You talk about the door being slammed in your face. Do you feel now, with this decision, do you feel that you're being listened to and that well, your views and your needs are being heard? Hopefully, they, they, they do listen because, like I say, he's a ticking time bomb. Mm. Like, I feel deep down in the heart, as soon as he gets the chance to commit again, he will. My, 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 my sort of lack of agreement with that man the other day was, was that he's one of those people that thinks that everybody could be rehabilitated and he threw at me the fact that Thompson, the other person... No, I'm with you, mate, I'm yeah. just doing the job. You know how strongly I'm with you. Yeah. The other guy, Thompson, has been <clears throat> apparently rehabilitated and is out and isn't going to reoffend. But that, to me, led me to say to him, but surely some people are so evil... They should never be released. And let's not forget what he did to James. And then let's not forget about the sexual pornography to do with children. And, and there's a massive part of me that goes, hold on a second, what are we doing as a society? You're done, mate. You don't deserve your liberty. Well, you've, you've just got to look at the... Um, when he was going on the dark web yeah. to cover up how to mess with kids. That, that speaks volumes. So he wouldn't be doing that unless he was... Contemplating doing something. But what would you say to the people who say his partner in crime, Thompson, has been rehabilitated? If you'd been sat with me the other day, what would you have said to that man who said, children aren't evil at ten? He, he's, he's just keeping his head down. That's all he's doing. He's keeping his head down. Whereas the other one has uh, proven that he can't. He, he likes what he's doing. Yeah. He, he didn't even turn doing. up mm. for his own parole hearing, mm. no. did he? I mean, what does that say... He's, to you. He, he's not bothered. There's no, been no remorse, though, Sarah, has there? No. there Ralph, there's, I've never heard any remorseful comment. Mm. Just a, apparently there was real anger that he hadn't been released as if he felt he was going to be released. So if you release, release him, then he kills another, t another child or a mother and child, then who's else responsible yeah. for letting them out? And I mentioned that the hearing was held in private because of his anonymity, you, mm. you've campaigned hard that you want mm. that lifted. You yeah. don't think he should have that right? Well, pe people should know what he looks like, so 
he, at, at least at forewarned, it's best to be forewarned, isn't it? You know what I mean? I, so. I, it's one of those subjects, mate, because I know you and I've known you for years, that, that gets my goat so much, and, and, I, and I don't understand, and Sarah, maybe you disagree with me. I think there are certain things in life that mean that you, you, you lose the right to be treated like the rest of civilization. Mm. And I am sick and tired of hearing people say to me, but you know, he's changed. Well, hold on a second, you just used the best sentence. You and your ex-wife have been given a life sentence. Mm. James got no chance, mm. and yet we're debating whether at taxpayers' cost, this piece of trash, who can I just repeat again, right, has come out twice because parole thought he'd changed mm. to make problems with kids and sexual abuse images. Is there not a case of, like, as a society, we should be going, sorry, you're too much of a danger, you've had your chance, you've broken the rules, do one. That's how I see exactly. it. Exactly. Well, it should be. Should Why be. do we not, though? Well, I wonder, I mean, we've had a series of, of justice secretaries, haven't we, over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, the justice secretary now, Alex Chalk, has said the government's reforming the parole system to try and introduce a stronger ministerial check on the most dangerous offenders, which I think, you know, John Venable certainly falls mm. in, into that category. Do you feel that government intervention is the right thing? And do you feel that this government is listening well, to you and taking this seriously. Ho hopefully they do take it serious and they've kept them in for a reason. Mm. Know what I mean? So did you read the was there a <coughs> was there an explanation? I didn't I didn't no. see it or was it just yeah. made They still think he's at age age to the to the public, so I got really uh, angry. And as you mentioned, that lack of remorse. It's just been no... And I got really angry, actually, um, Sarah. Oh. You went on the show, but, but I, I called out Alex Chalk and I said, why are you not, as the Justice Secretary, if you talk to 99.9% .9 of people, I suspect you get the same answer. And what happens the day that he's not released? Alex Chalk jumps up and goes, we're delighted. Well, you're the bleeding Justice Secretary. Why didn't you help that? That's what, that's what Ralph means when he says, Sarah, mm. doors shut in his face. Mm. What do you want? In an ideal world, keep them off the streets, make mothers and children safe, change the law. Yeah, just I'd throw away the, the key to be honest with you, but that's just me. It's probably not just him. That's Ralph Bolger, uh, Jamie's father. There talking about why he would just throw away the key when it comes to John Venables. We've heard, of course, that uh, Robert Thompson, the other um, kid involved in the murder is now out and supposedly rehabilitated properly. But let's talk now uh, to criminal barrister James uh, Oliveira Agnew. James, very good evening to you. Thanks for joining us. I mean, I suppose what Ralph Bolger might have wanted to say was, never mind throwing away the key, it would be nice to think that the parole board, having seen him now, I think, for the third time, might regard just looking at him again as a bit of a waste of time. Because if he's been in this long and they've now decided that he's still not really safe to be released, wouldn't it be better just to say... You know what? No more parole board hearings. We're not really interested in your rehabilitation. It's clearly not working. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, good evening, Mike. Thanks for having me on again. It's obviously one of those cases that's always got a public emotion to it. Um, starting off saying parole board have obviously listened to this carefully, taken into consideration all the views that have been put forward to them. One of the things that they've said quite tellingly is that they felt... He had an inability to be open and honest with anybody, the parole board, those around him, those within prison. And so that's obviously taken a big chunk out of his ability to be able to say that he's had any sort of reform at all.
But I can understand the position people take. You know, this is uh, a person who, on the parole board's own own view, doesn't deserve to be out in public. Mm. Uh, and they've taken that view to make sure the public are safe. And that's their, their role and responsibility. So I, I can entirely see that view of it. Of course, we have guidelines, we have sentences, we have ways that we deal with people in custody, out of custody. The parole board are bound by those. Um, but, but certainly, you can see the argument at this stage of saying that given what's happened in the past and how this has been progressing forward, it's very difficult to see how the parole board could have taken any other view on that. Yes. And I mean, we see calls for transparency in almost every area of government, but nobody seems to call for transparency when it comes to parole boards. They don't demand to know who's on them, and I can see why they might not want to do that. But surely we have a right to know, <clears throat> right to know exactly why the parole board has made a particular decision and what they've based it on, uh, because that may have some bearing on what happens next. It's certainly, those of us within the criminal justice system have always said transparency is, is a vital part. We've uh, those in criminal law have pushed for transparency for victims, for defendants, for witnesses, for how this whole process works. And I think shining a light on those things, people like the secret barrister who've tried to open up this whole area of law that's a, a, an absolute minefield for most people who thankfully never become involved in it. Uh, and I think there's certainly the Prob will do a, you know, a very difficult job. They're an independent body. They have to be. I disagree, I'm afraid, with the view that ministers should have more of an input. Uh, I think ministerial input is something that is is not to be taken uh, lightly in these sorts of situations. But independent parole board that deals with all of this, absolutely. But I, I certainly think there is an argument that a decision-making process could be made available to the public. Uh, certainly you heard Mr Bolger saying there that you know he was told no was the answer, but wasn't really given any more detail. Uh, and, and it's quite difficult to see why somebody in his situation can't be given a bit more detail on it, to be honest. Well, exactly right. And also the Times newspaper was trying to get inside the parole hearing so that they could report on it, um, with all the usual restrictions that you have on court reporting. And they were turned down as well. You know, it operates like a sort of secret cabal inside the justice system and I think that's wrong and it doesn't really give people any real faith that it's doing the right thing because it seems bonkers to me to have a guy like um, uh, like Venables who comes out twice and is recalled twice and seemingly that doesn't have any bearing really on when his next parole hearing is. It's going to be in another two years. Well I think it shouldn't be. I think it should be at least in another 10 or 15 years. That's certainly something, you know, a, a government can look at because at the moment we're bound by the rules. You know, we're the same, I think I said on this programme before, he has an anonymity order in effect. That was yeah. passed by the court. That's not the parole board's doing. Right. Um, and I can certainly see an argument about, you know, why members of the family and people may, there may be difficulty with them attending the hearing. But newspapers, journalists, you know, we, we see it in court sometimes. They're, they're sort of told they can't report on various things. Sometimes there's reasons for it, but the, the criminal justice system works because the public have faith in it. Right. Once you lose that bound, that contract, uh, the public will lose faith in the justice system. Um, I mean, I, I would say at this point in time, one of the things that, that I read about with this hearing in particular was um, you know, his mother saying that the delays and just the, waiting so long for everything has been problematic. And that, that's a problem throughout the whole criminal justice system. There's nearly 5,800 trials waiting to be heard. There's uh, a funding needs to be put in place for all of those things, yeah. and the, the justice system itself needs to be properly supported. But uh, I think that they've made the right decision, obviously, the 
the parole board. Um, but there's always going to be question marks if it's not transparent as to how they've come to that decision, what they've taken into account. And of course, for a family to, to have to go through it again in two years, I can understand the problems with that, yes. Yeah, absolutely. James, thanks very much indeed. James Oliveira Agnew, uh, criminal barrister there, talking about the John Venables parole situation. Uh, he mentions the secret barrister. I'm afraid that's another one of those people that's blocked me on Twitter, so I never see what the secret barrister has to say. There's even more secret than he thinks. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. MPs are set to get a pay rise of around £6,000, and I'll be taking your calls coming up as well. So don't forget, get in touch. How do we fix Britain? 0344 499 1000. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, we've already heard about the battle commencing tomorrow between NHS doctors and the government, and you already know where I stand on that particular issue. There's no way in the world that the very people who have signed up to do no ill will actually willingly do ill to patients and potential patients by going on strike and literally refusing to help people. But it will come as a bit of a surprise to the striking doctors that MPs are now in line for yet another pay rise and soon, which will bump their basic pay up to £92,731. That's three times the average salary in Britain and doesn't include the vast expenses they can claim. It's way ahead of inflation and it's been triggered because average public sector earnings have gone up thanks to a load of deals done by the government in the past year. But this latest rise, which will happen next April, comes on top of a 2,400 bump in April of this year. And you'll be pleased to know that the daily attendance allowance for peers is also going up to £366 every time they show up to the House of Lords to do some work. Famously, of course, MPs will always claim that pay rises that they get are nothing to do with them. The pay awards are made by a civil service body and are recommendations only. Many of them hide behind this and say there's nothing they can do. Well, I disagree. They can reject and all pay rises if they wish. And so they should. This time, MP salaries were frozen during COVID, so we know it can be done, although clearly not everyone agrees. Former Chancellor Sajid Javid, himself a self-made millionaire, has previously said that MPs should be paid more. He's even suggested that we should halve the number of them and double their salaries. Merry Christmas to you too, mate. Meanwhile, you also won't be surprised to learn that the gravy train of excess is still running through the civil service. Public servants at the end of their highly paid careers have been cashing in their chips with golden goodbyes to the tune of £150 million of our money. An audit of government accounts shows that as many as 238 former staff enjoyed bumper exit packages worth more than 100,000 quid, with a further 26 getting more than 150,000. The big winner was in the Treasury. Funnily enough, his name is Sir Tom Scholar. He was removed from his job by Kwasi Kwarteng on day one of his short-lived reign as Chancellor. Sir Tom trousered nearly 400,000 quid. And in total last year, they gave away 158 million quid of our money. Add that to the year before, and we've lost 340 million pounds to these mandarins. Is it any wonder that they're laughing all the way to the bank? Unbelievable stuff, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. We've got plenty of uh, reasons to try and fix Britain. We've got plenty of uh, answers from all of you as well. Uh, with four out of five dentists not taking new patients, when was the last time you went to the dentist? RC says this. About 20 years ago, 
I've hardly got any teeth left anyway. Uh, Mick says, 1994. I've still got 17 teeth left. And TF says, the funny thing is, I work for a dentist, but I haven't had my teeth looked at in four years. Extraordinary. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up uh, in the next hour, of course, there's loads going on. Do not dare move uh, from that sofa because we're going to talk more about Prince Andrew. We're going to talk more about the wokery that is infecting all of us, of course, and much, much else besides. And the number, of course, to call 0344 499 is the number. This is The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good evening. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker. Tonight, Esther Ranson's daughter tells Talk TV she fears she could be accused of murder after her mother joins Dignitas. Green London Mayor Sadiq Khan is accused of promoting an airline in exchange for business class seats. And Dundee City Council encourages the public to start up conversations with lampposts. You won't believe this. That is all in the world of woke. Plus, more on that Sun exclusive that the New York court has ruled that evidence of groping claims against Prince Andrew should be revealed within 14 days. Prince Andrew, of course, denies all the allegations. Tonight, I've been asking you, how do we fix Britain? And we'll be reading some of those messages out. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344-499-1000. Calls will cost the national rate. Now, how about this? He's the man that likes to paint himself as the man of the people, the man who cares. He's green, he's compassionate, and he really, really, really wants you to be kind to the planet. He's turned London into a cyclist paradise and a place where driving a car has become harder than climbing Mount Everest. But the one thing he isn't, of course is a hypocrite. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know who I'm talking about, right? It can only be the one and only Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. But tonight he stands accused of doing a deal with a big polluting American airline to get a load of business class tickets for his trade mission to the USA last year. Surely that can't be right. Surely there's no chance that the man who travels for free all over the Transport for London network and who has a Range Rover provided free for his official car would possibly use his position to get other freebies, would he? I don't believe the Air Miles Sadiq story. In fact, City Hall has already denied it. The trouble is, there is a little bit of evidence that might prove me wrong. United Airlines was able to show its logo at events on the tour, and they sent a representative to sit with his entourage on some of the flights. He also posted on Twitter how great it was that United now operates 22 flights a day from Heathrow, alongside a picture of him next to one of their planes. Listen... I wouldn't blame the Mayor of London for making use of his grand title and powerful reach to win favours when he's on his travels, telling us all to reduce our emissions. I mean, after all, he can't be expected to sit in economy, can he? Now, councils in England which delay or block housing developments for no good reason will be named and shamed. The Housing Minister, Michael Gove, said that in extreme cases, councils could even be stripped of their planning powers in a bid to get Britain building. 
rigorous inspection, robust league tables. I will apply the same principles and approach to the performance of local planning authorities. We will publish league tables revealing the real performance of local planning authorities, the speed with which they respond, the level of approvals, their delivery against targets. We will ensure that these league tables reflect how the system is gained at the moment by some. League tables, eh? Our political correspondent, Alicia Fitzgerald, was at the speech earlier today, and here's what she made of it. Michael Gove has today given a speech to outline plans for house building. He says this will be the first of many new plans to show that the Conservative Party are on the side of the builders, not the blockers. A bit of context about this is that the Conservative Party for a while had really ambitious house building targets. These came under pressure to be watered down by what we call the NIMBYs, that is the not-in-my-backyarders, who all said that protecting our countryside and making sure that there is substantial infrastructure in some of the more rural areas to support a bigger population is the most important thing. This speech definitely was about striking balance. Michael Gove said that this was about sensitive adjustment to the plans rather than abandonment, but you could definitely see that he was pandering to the side of the NIMBY pressure. He unleashed a few new announcements today, the first of which is that the councils will be able to be more heavily scrutinised by the government. He said that all councils must have suitable planning proposals and show the government that they have plans to increase their house building. He also said that if they don't keep up with this and if their plans are not suitable, he will personally intervene. Bit of a threat. Um, and lastly, and this was the most controversial of all of the announcements, was that he is actually giving councils the power to water down their house building targets. That is obviously going to be a bit divisive considering he was trying to say that the party are on the side of the builders, not the blockers. But what he was saying here is that if a certain area, a certain council have reason to say that building these houses would cause negative impacts to the environment, building on the green belt, for example, they must provide ample evidence to the government to say why these houses can't be built can't be built and this will be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. So the overall ethos of the speech was definitely Michael Gove trying to please both sides here and strike a balance between knowing that we need more houses but also making sure that our countryside stays intact and that everyone's happy. So not particularly exciting, not particularly innovative and probably isn't going to happen. Apart from that, brilliant. Uh, to discuss this I'm joined by property expert Mr Russell Quirk. Russell, uh, very good evening to you. Welcome to the uh, new improved Independent Republic of Mike Graham in, under dark it times. Um, good evening, good evening. I said at the start of the show, you know, uh, what are we going to do to fix Britain? Well, I mean, you could build a lot more houses and that might help because it might, you know, stimulate the economy locally and nationally. It might give money to people who need the work. It might give money to companies that need uh, the income. And it might actually improve the living conditions for an awful lot of people who don't have any houses. But nobody really believes that anything that Michael Gove said today is going to happen, do they? Well, no, uh, unfortunately, because we have heard it all before and we've heard the same rhetoric from multiple different secretaries of state, multiple prime ministers and housing ministers, going back really, Mike, until the 1960s. You know, yeah. we haven't built enough houses in this country since the days of Macmillan. We need 300,000 a year. The Conservatives, of course, have rode back on that as a target, although Michael Gove did mention it coming back today, but didn't formalise it. Uh, and we deliver about 200,000. So there's about 100,000 homes per annum deficit. And the, the, the speech, though, today, Mike, from Michael, um, from Michael Gove was rather schizophrenic, I thought. I mean, yeah. on the one hand, he's saying, I'm going to punish councils if they don't play ball, even though a lot of the stuff he talked about is already in place. They already have five-year plans. They are already scrutinised in terms of performance. So it, it was pretty mealy-mouthed in that respect. But 
and Alicia's dead right. You know, this this whole kind of green belt running back thing, yeah. which is to appease the likes of Teresa Villiers, who famously a few months ago said, uh, you know, we I'm going to put together a backbench rebellion, another one uh, of 60 conservative MPs. Right. Um, if you make us accept more housing in our constituencies, because we think that we might get voted out as a consequence. Well, Theresa and others, I've got news for you. You're going to get voted out anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, the problem is, Mike, and sorry, and I'm on a little rant here. Can you give me a little rest, mate? Um, the problem is it's not an issue of planning that is the problem with UK house building. There are currently one million unfulfilled planning permissions in Britain. So in other words, a million planning permissions that have been consented yeah. where the developers have not built the houses oh. so the problem isn't planning the problem is the builders not wanting to build where and when society wants and needs them to okay see that comes as a surprise to me uh, because i was always under the impression that planning was the, was the sort of hold up was the the bottleneck because i don't know anyone who's tried to do anything that involved the planning department of a local council who hasn't had it held up by that local council sometimes to a ridiculous degree but you're saying that's actually not the big problem it, it's definitely, you're right, it's definitely a part of the problem. Uh, council planning departments are awful. I mean, that they are mired in the, the treacle of bureaucracy. They are incredibly inefficient and actually overtly political because where, as I just referenced, MPs get concerned about big developments in their constituencies not being wanted by the constituents, it's even worse when it comes to smaller developments and guns being held to the heads of local councillors by residents. So yeah, the, the planning system is it is an absolute quagmire of inefficiency. It's yeah. a mess, but it is definitely not the biggest problem. The, the, the problem is we don't really have any longer what we call SME builders. You know, the, the small yeah. grafting builder that builds 10 houses a year, 20 houses a year, and, and does a very, very good job and takes pride in that job. 80% of houses now are delivered by just 10 massive PLC house builders, um, some of which, by the way, are also donors to the Conservative Party, of course, um, join the dots. Um, and, and that is why we're at the behest of their shareholders deciding what is built where and when, rather than it being a question of us having those houses built, uh, you know, on a regular basis, year on year, no matter what. Right. And so what is the answer? Because we're trying to get some answers tonight about how to fix Britain. I mean, you've been in the business a long time, Russell. What, would, what should they be saying? What should they be suggesting? So, so the, the last people that we want dealing with the problem of housing supply is politicians. Yeah. Because I think they've proved over the last 30 or 40 years that they are completely incompetent when it comes to the delivery of housing. They simply play political football with the subject. What we need to do is to set up something that is kind of run like a private sector business, but of course owned by the public, as in shareholders, but that's given a long-term mandate in terms of what needs to be built where and when, and simply left to get on with it. I mean, outside the realms of housing ministers meddling on a day-to-day -day basis, outside the realms of parliament, whereby there's, there's a mandate given, let's say on a 10-year basis, across the country for effectively a, a board of directors with wow. one job, and that is to deliver houses across the country where they're needed. And, and what I mean by that as well is not just the houses that we all want to buy, but of course the implications on lack of housing supply, Mike, are that we've got an incredibly dangerous kind of social housing crisis where there's about a million people now on the housing waiting list because social housing is indelibly linked to the delivery of housing overall. So 
take it out of the hands of politicians, give a bunch of people that know the industry a mandate and let them get on with it. In other words, politicians need to get out of the way. Yes, but in terms of social housing, we also know an awful lot of social housing is now taken up by people who have come here from other countries. And while um, it doesn't necessarily affect the whole of Britain, certainly in the London area, uh, it's almost 50% of the social housing. And only yesterday I was reporting on this new um, net zero sort of a crusade where they're giving something like six billion quid as a grant to various homes to put heat pumps in and much of that will go on uh, into into social housing you're kind of going well surely you should spend that money building houses shouldn't you building houses instead and of course the, the answer was supposed to be the introduction of housing associations a yeah. few years ago there's about a thousand of those now mm. but of course most of those with their highly paid chief executives are now actually building as many houses for sale as they are for social rent and shared ownership because yeah. you know they, they want to uh, they, they want to shore up their own coffers what yeah. we actually need to get back to and, and i can't believe i'm saying this as a conservative but is the good old days of building council houses yeah. the problem is councils now don't know how to build houses yeah. uh, we used to build three hundred thousand of those a year i mean back in macmillan's day mm. now we barely build three thousand council houses a year that's the problem mm. um, and, and that actually is probably the only thing in housing in my opinion that should be left to a, a kind of political dynamic in other words if a local council doesn't build enough council houses they get voted out yeah Absolutely. Russell, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Russell Quirk there with a couple of answers as to what they could be doing about housing. But listening to Michael Gove See talking about most things, you just really don't find yourself being thrilled with any of the progress that you're suggesting the country will make. Let's go to the calls now, though. You know the number, 0344 499 1000. Bob is in Ludlow, wants to talk about the NHS dentist problem. Bob in Ludlow, very good evening to you. Hello, Bob. Is Bob there? No? Let's try Colin in Wellingborough. Hello, Colin. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? You're in Peter Bones' constituency. Yeah, well, I'm in Peter Bones' constituency. The, um, the uh, recall petition only closed today at 5pm. Yes. Yet the Labour Party have been sending out glossy leaflets over the last three, two, two weeks. Oh, really? So, yes. Three glossy uh, election leaflets... A friend of mine received a Christmas card from the candidate, oh, yeah. described herself as the candidate. Uh -huh. I received another leaflet today, today, the very last day of the election, uh, of the recall petition, right. which said vote Labour. Uh -huh. How do they know? How do they know? How did the Labour Party know that Peter Bone was going to lose the recall petition? Well... It's a very good question. I mean, is it not so much that he loses it, it's just that enough people vote to have the recall? Yeah, the point is, it's a ballot. People have to go to a polling station to, right. sign, to sign. How do they know, way in advance of the closure, that the 10% criteria was exceeded? Well... They may, not they, have known? Known, they may not have known that. They may have just been wishful thinking. But, but is that some kind of interference in the electoral process? I don't know. Well, the point is, uh, Mike, it might be wishful thinking, but why are they, the Labour Party spending a lot of money on glossy leaflets in advance of a possibility yeah. that it may not happen in the first place? Yes. Well, that's, that's a very good very question, odd. which I which I can't answer, but I'll attempt no. to get an answer for you because no, presumably they wanted there to be a recall, they wanted there of to be a by-election because they think they yeah. can win it. 
Yes, but uh, the point is, I reckon, and I think that the election agents from the from the other political parties should be questioning their return of election expenses because these leaflets have been sent out before an election took place. Mm. And therefore, one can argue the Labour Party have already started their election campaign in advance of an election yes. that hasn't even been called yet. Yes, that's a very good point. Very interesting. Yeah. I'll see if I can get yeah. an answer to, for, for, from uh, one of our panel guests here tonight. Uh, thanks very much right. indeed. I think we've got Bob in Ludlow back. Uh, wants to talk about NHS dentists. Hi, Bob. Have we got him back? It's one of those things, isn't it? When somebody goes the first time, sometimes they just don't come back at all. Never mind. Uh, we'll take more of your calls coming up a little bit later on. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, uh, I'll take more of your calls. The great British public have their say here and only here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Also, Dundee City Council launched a scheme to talk to lampposts. That's right. I'm not kidding you. Hello, McFly. You heard me correctly. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. There have been some incredible pictures coming out of Iceland following weeks of intense earthquake activity. A volcano finally did erupt on the Reykjanes Peninsula of the southwest of the country. It's said that the loss of life has been avoided, but that's only because 4,000 locals have been evacuated over the previous weeks from Grindavik, a fishing town about two and a half miles away. Now, have a listen and a look at this, because this is unbelievable. I saw this earlier today and I thought, we've got to put this out there, uh, because I can't imagine what it must be like to be anywhere near this thing. Now, I don't know about any of you. I've got the panel back with me. I don't know if any of you have ever been anywhere near a volcano. I've been up Etna, Mount Etna in Sicily, and also Vesuvius in, um, uh, in southern Spain. And it really is quite a remarkable thing. You know, it makes you feel like no matter how much we talk about the power of politics and the power of whatever else, you know, this is proper, you know, no messing around um, oh, life and apart. nature. And it's the, quite crack in, the crack in this volcano is three and a half kilometres yeah, wide. Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure if it's wide or long. I don't know. Is it sort of breaking uh -huh. apart as we speak? I think it's, I think it's long. Yeah. But I don't know. Mass I mean, it just puts But the thing is, everyone in Iceland <laughs> seems to be taking it in their stride and just going, yeah, well, it's another, it's another yeah, earthquake. I, I remember the they have ash clouds. Remember, yeah. remember the ash cloud? I mean, yeah. yeah that, well, I know people who got stuck by that, stuck in New York. But can you say it? Elif or what are the words? No, definitely can't say it. Can't, can't say. remember it. But, um, but yeah, I remember when it happened, loads of people were stuck in, in America because yeah. they couldn't fly back for like a month. They had to pay for their hotels and all Ooh. sorts of stuff. I remember, I remember being sent as a reporter to Spain to pick some British uh, tourists back up. We got, oh, really? we got sent seven buses down to right. Benidorm and <laughs> yeah. we had to come back again. Yeah, I mean, there was certainly there was a worry because I was going over to America and I was worried that if there was another one of these volcanoes that went up, there would be another poisonous ash cloud that nobody would be able to go near, but it didn't turn out that way because the wind and was And didn't blown. people have it landing on their cars in this country and stuff? I think so. Yeah. There was, like, snowing... I think so. Snowing ash. Yeah, yeah it was... It was amazing. Scary. But this thing is, is, is incredible because we've waited such a long time for it and, it, and it really is. And, of course, social media being what it is, loads of people have been putting out fake <laughs> volcano footage. I found some that was put out the other day. These are live pictures, by the way. Um, I, I found some today which were actually, uh, which somebody had kind of adapted from a Star Wars film. But they were going, isn't it amazing what this is? And people, people don't really know, you know, uh, that's what they were doing. They haven't got much to compare it to. No, absolutely not.
So you get people going up close to it, try and get the videos and, and all that. Balling. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I went to the top of uh, Vesuvius and you could actually smell the sulphur. And, you know, I went on one of those coach trips where you go up and you stop and you have some Italian food and wine and then you sort of carry on all the way up to the top. And it's the most, I find it very amazingly fascinating because it's all just the, 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 the earth is scorched. There's no, nothing growing there. Well, it puts some context on when you've seen something like this and then you think about Yellowstone and yeah. And when so when you know, the people say like oh if Yellowstone went up yeah. that's probably it for human life right and you're like really and yeah. then you see something like this which is a tiny volcano mm. really you're like okay I believe it now yeah I can see how that they goes. do they talk about these super volcanoes don't they it also puts that whole just stop oil cobblers into perspective as well because you know if the Earth is ever going to die it will be as you say Henry as a result of something like this not because you know I've been driving around a Range Rover for a couple of years. You know, but anyway, um, the other big story of the day that I wanted to, to, to put to you guys is um, the Esther Ranson story. We talked about it last night a little bit because she was on the front pages of a lot of the papers. Um, and she was talking about how, how because of her uh, ongoing cancer battle and the fact that she's now in stage four of lung cancer, um, she's basically signed herself up to Dignitas because she doesn't want to die a horrible death. And Esther Ranson's daughter, um, Rebecca was with us a bit earlier today and she was talking to Kevin O'Sullivan and Alex Phillips. Let's have a look at what she had to say. Um, if you've met my mum, she doesn't come to decisions lightly and she doesn't change her mind. So by the time we heard about it, it was intractable law in our house. But she has always said that she wants to have a dignified life and a dignified death. And the process of dying replaces and supersedes your family's memories if it's a terrible death. And I think a lot of people can kind of understand that. I mean, last night the panel were kind of split on it because Madeleine Grant was here and she was, like, not sure about the fact that she wanted to give the right to almost anybody to, to kind of plan their own death. But, Emma, what would you say to, to people about this? Well, I think what Esther Ranson's been saying, and then a few weeks ago, Dame Diana Wigg as well, talking about, and that was before her death, and talking about what she was actually yeah. going through and the indignity and, you know, losing control of her bowels and things like that. Mm. And the pain, you know, the um, unbearable pain of dying of cancer. Yes. Um, and I watched my father die, die from cancer. And I do think there's something, um, there's something about what, what they say, living, living a dignified life, which we all want to do, or we get yeah. to choose how we live our lives. Why can't we choose how we live? Why can't we have some choice over how we die? And I know it's often, you know, about animals. We don't let animals die in agony. Right. We take them to a nice, warm mm. veterinary surgery and we hold them in our arms and we put them to sleep. Yeah, I think that's right, Henry. I mean, people don't often think about it unless they've been involved, I suppose, with, with one of their own members of the family. But cancer can be incredibly painful and really, you know, you don't just kind of fade away. It can be incredibly ghastly for your last days and sometimes weeks and sometimes months. months. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've had a relative who, had a, who, who chose to have a DNR order, which isn't quite the same thing. Yeah. But, you know, that's do not resuscitate. Yes. Um, and I, I, I support the principle that somebody should be able to choose to end their own life mm. in certain circumstances. I think the big problem with the debate, though, is that it's fine to accept that in principle, but the counterexample is, is Canada, right? Yeah. If, you, if, if viewers don't know what's happening in Canada, Canada brought in medically assisted dying, mm. and it has very, very quickly gone from something that you offer people with terminal illnesses in great pain mm. to something that is offered 
to a huge number of people. It's actually offered sometimes as an option on mental health helplines. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, people are opting for MAID because they're too they're 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 too poor yeah. to to access medical services and all kinds of stuff. So I think that the challenge for policymakers is how do you make it so that people in very specific circumstances yeah. can make that decision to forestall a load of pain for themselves and their loved ones right. without creating that situation where you know, you start just nudging people towards yeah. it, which is what's happening. Or it gets misused. I mean, it's yeah. been in place in, in Oregon, I think. I remember doing stories about this years ago when I worked in America. It's been in place in Oregon, I think, for 25 years. And they had big debates about it before they put it in there. And it seems to have worked in Oregon. You know, because I'm assuming that if you take the view, um, I'll come to you, Ryan, in a second, that, that, you know, there are bad people in the world and they might use something like this for nefarious purposes. I mean, they're already there. So people are already out there who, who have, you know, bad feelings towards members of their family or whatever. So, I mean, that's always going to be there. But surely you could put in place a kind of mechanism by which you could see if people could qualify for it or something, yeah. if they wanted to. There needs to be some kind of safeguard. Putting the onus on those relatives... Um, to, you know, they they they, they, they want to help their, yeah. their loved one. They, you know, they may want to take them to Switzerland and yeah. fulfil their wishes. But yeah. if they know they're going to get prosecuted on their on the on the when they come home, it puts them in a really really difficult. Well, it position. does, and I mean that was what Rebecca said. Um, that you know, she was basically of the opinion that she couldn't say on live television. You know, I want to help my mother to do this, and I'll take her to Dignitas because she said if I say that, there's a pretty good chance that I will be arrested and I will be charged. And eventually, I think most people who have ever been charged get off because yeah. courts don't really want to prosecute them because it's, it's horrible. Um, but, yeah, I, it just seems to me that it's something that, um, you know, governments should not be involved in to some extent. You know, it's a bit like the abortion debate in America. I always think, you know, why are you legislating about this? Why are you not just leaving that to be the judgment of people who are in charge of their own bodies? And I feel like death should be the same. I mean, my mother died recently. And she was 99 years old and, and, you know, it was, it, luckily for her, it was very peaceful. I saw her just before she died. But if she had got herself into a place where she just didn't want to be around anymore, at that sort of age, you'd kind of go, well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be quite happy to take you wherever you want to go. Yeah. Is it the responsibility of the individual to have that dignified death? I think that's quite an important phrase, actually. Yeah. You, are, you are that person, you are that sole person who has that, that you're, you take responsibility yeah. upon yourself to actually... Die that way if that, that's, that's, that's your wish. I think so. But the problem with, with saying we need to take the government out of it, and, and it, the problem that we've seen in countries where this has gone wrong, like yeah. the Netherlands, is that it's not bad actors like relatives that hate you. It's state services mm. effectively encouraging... Once you open this door and you don't have those adequate safeguards in place, state services start steering people towards yes. made. In, especially because it's cheaper, mm. right? Like, if you've got the option of spending a huge amount of your limited budget looking after someone, or maybe they've actually chosen to go for medically-assisted dying. That's what we've seen mm. in Canada, and it's horrifying, and it's a huge number of very vulnerable people. So the challenge... Yeah, everyone... I believe in the individual right to end your own life. Absolutely, I yeah. think that's fine. But, if you, but you can't separate the government from it, because if this is something that you can legally claim, then you have to address how will the NHS... Mm deal with this? Yes. How will other state services deal with it? Right. Yeah, that's we don't want to get into a situation a where point. people are just whittling down their fortunes. Right. Um, you know, they've got a big fortune, but the actual thing, oh, do you know, my family might have an extra, you know, few thousand pounds to play right. with at the end, end of the day. Well, see, that, that's an interesting point as well, because that takes you into that whole conversation about care homes and having a house that you have to sell uh, to pay for your care. And if you haven't got a house to sell, you get the care anyway. But if you do, a lot of families lose whatever they might have had as a kind of nest egg because you've got to sell the place 
and you no longer can take the proceeds from that. I think we have such a problem with death in general and death and dying. We just don't talk yeah. about it, we don't understand. It's only when you've been with a close relative mm. dying yeah. um, that it's a whole new world. Right. That we, because it's distasteful and it's scary and no one wants to talk about dying, right. we, don't really, we, we haven't really addressed these issues. No. When someone dies, it's all very mysterious. Right. Suddenly their body's taken away and then you'd have to start calling funeral homes right. and talking to... I mean, it's just... It's, it's something a weird that world. Yeah, no one ever right. tells you about until you're no. in that position. Right, absolutely. For me, it was a real revelation. A bit like getting married. You know, you never know what's going to happen I wouldn't there know either. about that. No, I mean, they mean either. Uh, let's talk about Sadiq Khan, my favourite subject. Um, Plank of the Year coming up soon. He's very much in the running. He's only, if it hadn't been for Harry Plank and Plank of Bacon, the Year. Oh, he Plank should of be. Plank of the Year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's been Sadiq it's Khan's year. It's a bit London-centric, though, Mike. Well, funnily enough, the hatred for Sadiq Khan, I think, is national. It's, it's funny how it transcends it. I just think of all the people who are not in London. <coughs> yeah. Why do they care? Why do they hate him? But everybody yeah. does. Well, because he's a very hateful character. I mean, you look at him and you go, what is wrong with this guy? And his latest one, right, is apparently, in, and City Hall are denying it, but I think it's a bit of a non-denial denial, that he appears to have um, done some kind of deal with United Airlines when he went on his... I mean, trade mission to America. Why is he going on a trade mission to America? We haven't got a trade deal with America. Biden doesn't want to give us one, but he went anyway, um, and apparently um, he got some business-class seats in exchange for a sort of PR um, <clears throat> duopoly, if you like, where um, he says that uh, he didn't get involved in anything, but there are pictures of him standing in front of a United Airlines plane saying, oh, isn't it great? United fly 23 flights every day now from Heathrow. And you kind of go... <laughs> it looks like an for? advert and it <laughs> sounds like an advert, yeah, mate. It, <laughs> I think if you're going to do that sort of deal, you have to be open and transparent. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, suggesting, on, I'm not yeah. suggesting he took any money or yeah. anything like that, but he certainly got some business class seats, we well, believe. So at least get first class, right? Well, like, have a bit of ambition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Extra one-inch leg He's selling the mayoralty of London cheap. Yes, well, he really is. Almost as bad as selling it in the first place. Shouldn't be flying. Shouldn't be flying. Eulers, Eulers. Well, that's the other flying. thing. He, he shouldn't be flying. be flying because he's telling us all he's the time. He's telling us Eulers. That we shouldn't even be driving. <laughs> which is another reason that people hate him because he takes his dogs for a walk in one of his cars, of which there are three, uh, takes the bodyguards with him, drives for three miles to a piece of green land somewhere like Clapham Common to walk a dog, when there's plenty of other pieces of green land where he, near where he lives. You know, he's just, he's just a very annoying man, I think. <laughs> isn't he? Annoying. Yes. Yeah. And he yes. keeps going on and on about... If you open voting, I'll vote all the him good for things, the, All the good yeah. things that he's doing in, in London. And people that live in London, have lived in London, me all my life, I was born here. You know, he's definitely made London worse. Jeremy Clarkson put out a tweet the other day, um, which I can't repeat because there was some swearing in it. But basically he said, you know, he's travelled around the world and everywhere he goes, he talks about London being the greatest city in the world. He said, but Sadiq Khan is basically ruining it. The thing, that, the thing that winds me up the most is that he has this night czar, Amy LeMay. Uh, her salary's gone up every year. She's paid like 168000 during during her time in office. Yeah. London's nightlife has tanked. Like, you can't get lay licences. Half the clubs have shut. Right. Someone FOI'd her diary. She's not doing anything right. day to day. He's and, and, and it's just symbolic of the problem. He has this very highly paid person who... Like ticks, all, ticks all the right boxes, and then the actual thing that she's supposed to do, one of the things which actually did used to make London a great city, 10 years ago, you could go out in London yeah. spontaneously. Yeah. You, yeah. There were places that were open till 6, there were places you got to at 6 right. if you were really on it. Now, nearly all of that's gone, and that's under him, despite having a highly paid... It looks right. like he might... You know, it looks like he's on his way to winning a, well, a, another Tories term. Well, incredibly, have found the worst candidate to put up against him, Susan Hall who is a very fine woman and, and somebody that we've had on this show many times. But, but I don't think she's got it. I don't, she's just not really going to unseat anybody. 
Yeah, you got the reform on one side, yeah. and Howard Cox, with and, Howard Cox. And, and then on the. I wonder whether you need Jeremy Corbyn to um, to get Sadiq Khan out to actually take you know mm. a decent uh, percentage of the vote. Well, there was some suggesting maybe you should bring Boris Johnson back and have, uh, let him have another go. But I think even that it wouldn't happen, would it? I can't. I'd, I'd, I'd be absolutely amazed if he uh, if he came back. It's and did been that. a hell of a year. I yeah, mean, no, exactly. I don't think yeah, you can watch out. Yeah. We've still got some time before New Year comes. I'm not sure you can guarantee that yeah. it wouldn't happen. Um, another story that I want to talk about: Lake Windermere apparently is in the news because there's been a huge story up there. A private landowner has been accused of scarring the landscape by basically felling an acre of trees. This seems to be a thing now. Felling oh. trees. Did they ever find that guy that, that hacked out the Sycamore Gap? Well, they arrested somebody for it, but I think they've let him go and said it wasn't him. So they've, they've even though I think that guy had a chain, you know, he was the ch local. He was the late local yeah. lumberjack. Yeah. I mean, but, you think but how do you fell an acre him, of you know, trees given what he does. quietly overnight? Well, you don't, do you? I don't know how this happened. I think, if I, but I find it very odd because we, we saw it, it was in Plymouth Council did it recently where they got rid of a load of trees, and they've also done it, I think, in another town down on the southwest. Um, where they've decided, oh, it's Torquay, I think. They felled all their palm trees because they decided they were riddled with some kind of disease. And it's a very odd... It's, it's a big issue, I think. It's in the Plymouth thing. instance, it cost the, like, the council the election. Yeah, he had to, you know, the, local, the, the head of the council, yeah. I think, had to resign. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't understand where all of these orders for cutting down trees are coming from. People living close to the Lake District site said uh, there's been birds living there for years, deer, squirrels, polecats... These are all more than 100-year-old trees that have been cut down. Well, this wasn't, <clears throat> this wasn't an order. Apparently, this is the, this is the landowner doing yeah. it privately. Right. And apparently, they're now sort of sketching out to build something. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the implication seems to be, although no one's proved anything, that this person has just illegally clear-cut this bit of right. land in order to build on it. Right. And the council it's apparently... It's a Brazilian rainforest type situation. Yeah, in a way, in a microcosm. And the council apparently can't investigate it because they've got a backlog of 600 cases. Yeah. But they're very serious about it. Oh, of course. I mean, the other thing, I suppose, that you would cut trees down for is to just keep yourself warm over the course of the winter because mm. it's obviously very rather expensive to pay for electricity and gas now. So if you've got trees anywhere nearby, just cut them yeah. down and put them on the fire. Yeah. Although I can it's say that... It's extreme to do an acre of trees. It is quite extreme. Maybe flogging them. You're supposed to season <laughs> them as well. You can't really... You're not supposed to burn them straight away. But apparently he's upset Chris Packham. Oh, so yeah. now he's really in trouble. Yeah. So we'll see. I don't know, what, I don't know what's going on with that. Um, but you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, I'll be telling you about another bonkers council that wants townsfolk to speak to lampposts. Also, we'll have a look at tomorrow's front pages. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Work. We're always hearing about how absolutely cash-strapped our local authorities are and how they have to cut back on the services they provide because there just isn't enough money to go around. Libraries, swimming pools, meals on wheels, social care, everything's suffering because they simply can't make ends meet. Indeed, some are even going bankrupt because of their poor financial management. But these are not the kind of things that worry the good burgers of Dundee because up there in Scotland, the land of juked, jam and junkies, they've got a new innovation. Yes, indeed, of all the things that the people of Dundee are craving, their local councillors are focused on, wait for it, talking lampposts. I'm afraid you heard correctly, that's talking lampposts. I kid you not. Members of the public are encouraged to start up a conversation with lampposts, bus shelters and fences in Dundee. But they don't want you to have any old conversation. They don't want you to just exchange niceties about how your day's going. That's far too mundane for them. No, what they want is for you to consult them about climate change. 
How about this from the Climate, Environment and Biodiversity Convener Councillor, Heather Anderson. I know if I should do the accent. Climate change is already having an impact on Dundonians and we want to make it as easy as possible for people across the city to find out more about the challenges we face and how we might address them. I mean, she says, hello, lamppost is easy to use and you could win a £20 Dundee Loves Local gift card as well. Brilliant. Hello. Hello, lamppost. Is there anybody there? Christ. The world of work. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk TV. We've got uh, the panel here, the cast of characters. Let's look at some other stories from tomorrow's papers. And I guess, guys, we have to start off with uh, the Sun's front page. I pr promised you more on this. Andrew Grope case bombshell. Um, and it's all about how a woman who's accused him of groping her breasts at Epstein's New York mansion in March 2001 when she was 21... Um, is now coming back for a court case with him. And these documents are relating to that court case. They're going to be released in 14 days' time. They're likely to um, involve names in the sort of Epstein black book as well as uh, Prince Andrew. But it's all going to be pretty bad news, I guess, isn't it, for Charles and I say, it's a pretty, uh, Christmas at, the, at Sandringham. Yeah, <laughs> pretty uneasy for... You know, uh, pretty awkward. You know, hey, Andrew, how's it going? Not well. <laughs> you know, maybe he'll be in the lodge this winter. Yeah, uneasy Christmas for, for the whole family. And it just makes you wonder what kind of integration programme can Prince Charles put um, yeah. his brother on? It just seems well, almost can impossible. He? I mean, obviously, he's going to deny... He does deny all the allegations, and he'll deny them, no doubt, when the King asks him about them. But as you say, Emma, how awkward is that? I mean, it's like having the black sheep of the family turn up for Christmas dinner. I mean, Christmas is bad enough with your family. Yeah. And I uh, can imagine it's pretty awkward at Sandringham anyway, but... 40 pages of documents, what's Andrew going to say to that? I know. It just keeps coming, you know, the Epstein thing is so... The Epstein thing, and a lot of people have said this, haven't they, that, that there's been an awful lot of names that were associated with Epstein that have never really come out. It looks like that's now... That may now they come may out. May be released. And, and all, of the, all of the people that we know that visited the island that they talk about in the Caribbean... I mean, you know, this could be quite damaging. It's difficult. The royal family just can't seem to move on no. at the moment from this. You know, we've got the, the Harry situation, yeah. we've got Prince Andrew. It's just really, really difficult. And it's, this is all dog, the beginning of the king's reign, yeah. as it were. And he hasn't right. really, you know, he, you know, he's doing great charitable work in, in, yeah. in areas, but it's difficult to get out of that sort of second or third gear. But yeah, you've I know. always got this dragging you back. It is difficult. I mean, he's taken the, the role at a pretty difficult time, generally, because we've got the whole argument about reparations going on, whether the Commonwealth is going to succeed in, in the future or whether it's going to be, you know, much watered down. You know, is he going to have to resign as the king of some country or other that he doesn't want to be in charge of anymore? Plus Harry and now Andrew. Yeah, when it he, comes to the Commonwealth, I think Prince, Prince William has, uh, has already said that he's probably not going to... He's not going to be the next head, head of the right. Commonwealth. So right. that's one sort of tie that the... That the family have lost. Mm, yeah, pretty awkward. Now, before we look at anything else, and we've got um, the Metro as well, actually, Epstein friends named on January the 1st. The paedophiles, powerful friends, will be sweating over Christmas, they say. Just one story that, that was um, around earlier today that I just wanted to mention, this story from France about an antiques dealer who bought um, an African mask off some people for 130 quid, then was able to sell it for 3.6 million. He's just won a court case to say that he doesn't have to give them any extra money. Because they were going, this is a bit harsh. You know, we sold it for 130 quid. He sold it for 3 million plus. Can we not have some of his money? No, apparently not. 
But it's like when you buy an old, you know, an old cupboard and then you realise you get it home and you brush it up and you right. realise it's a Chippendale or something. Right. Well, or if there's a Van Gogh in the back well, there's that a Van nobody Gogh. knew yeah, about. Exactly. And also, he did offer them some of the money, right? He offered them £300,000, yeah. which is what he listed it as. Right. But they were like, no, nah, they wanted the whole thing struck off yeah. because they claimed that he defrauded them right. by buying their mask at the price they sold it to him yes. for. And basically, the court just said, no, you didn't bother to value it before you sold it. That is very much on you. Yes, absolutely right. But, I mean, it just goes to show, if you do find something in the attic, it's always worth, you know, yeah. taking it somewhere to get it checked out. Um, you've, well, you've all expressed a bit of shock at the thing that I wasn't going to talk about, but we now have to, the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Award, uh, because the woman who won it is the England women's goalkeeper, Mary Earps. And she's not wearing a very, what I could say, sort of, you know, suitable outfit. Is she for... A television awards show? Uh, am, I, am I wrong? For, for all of what I know about fashion, that's probably the height of fashion. So I'm probably going to leave it to uh, the experts. But well, uh, it looks like underwear to me. Oh, absolutely staggered, and I, right? I, I can say this because I'm a woman. You I can don't, say, you guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, this is the kind of a g-string, a bit of a lacy bra. Her skirt is halfway down her hips. She looks yeah. like she hasn't put her top on. Yeah, and it's um, on the front page of the nice Times. It's very nice as underwear, but it, it, for, for BBC, this isn't like some, you know, club. She's well, the, depending on which, which picture, I mean, the picture on the front of the Telegraph is probably more revealing than the one on the front of the Times. The Guardian have gone rather sort of coquettishly um, with a cropped picture which doesn't show... So that they don't the show it, yeah, because they wouldn't want to... Because yeah. no doubt their feminist readers would be outraged. It's, it's well, it's just eye... Um, it's eyebrow-raising, I would say. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, of course, she's the goalkeeper she's who... she's showing that footballers can be sexy, I suppose. I think that's her sort of subtext. Yeah. There. Well, I think we know that, don't we? I mean, most yeah. male footballers are supposed to be sexy. But I think uh, critics of the award to her would say that her contribution to football hasn't been great. They went to the World Cup, didn't win it. Um, and she didn't perform particularly brilliantly. But yet she's somehow the sports personality of the year. I'd have to Sounds find a bit out, woke yeah. to me. Yeah, of course it's woke. You know. you, you, but, yeah, it I, think, I think now you have so many sort of social media campaigns to try and get the the winner and phone you know phone this number and they, you know it all depends on you know the, the people in the team saying vote for her that you you know it's not quite it's a bit always the vote seems a bit skewed. Yeah, well I suspect that's right, and I mean it's hosted by Gary Lineker and Alex Scott, I think, isn't it? Which pretty much tells you all you need to know. Um, I mean, it's hard to look at the mirror next, but I don't think I've got one. Um, what the mirror got? Are we seeing that? Have you got the mirror? Uh, no, we haven't got the mirror. mirror. Um, let's look at uh, the Times. It said, back home for the holidays, plenty of staff already are. It says, the week before Christmas and across the country, offices are empty. Is that right? I mean, London does seem quite quiet, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about it, that, you know, during the, during the you know, Fridays, um, notoriously quiet yeah. in the city of London. And, and, and this week, it seems like that's the norm. It's There's, like people have yeah. clocked off already. Yeah. It's only, well, I mean, yesterday, start of the week, the 18th of December. That's not like, you know, I suppose it's the final week because yeah. Christmas is a funny time this year. But it is. this morning, the city of London, 8, 9 o'clock, was absolutely dead. I thought right. it was a Friday. Does it feel Christmassy to you? Yeah. Not quite. Maybe, maybe after this show. Maybe, Relax. yeah. I think you have to stop working, don't you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And the I weather what it's like for you, nice. Henry. Well, I mean, when I was growing up, because my birthday was only a few days ago, my mum absolutely refused to let Christmas start. Yeah. And to even, at all, even put any decorations up until, like, the 14th of December. Right. So, but after that, it was full Christmas. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, this feels Christmassy. Right. Because that's when we started it when we were younger. But it hasn't been cold enough. That hasn't, like, it doesn't... The, you normally at Christmas you get the sort of the weather closes in yeah, and everything. Yeah. Haven't really had that this time. It just is wet. It's just wet and kind of yeah. bleh. It's autumnal. But, but also, once the, doc, once the doctor's strike starts, maybe then it will feel Christmassy, which will be seven o'clock tomorrow morning. You know, because yeah. it's going to be ridiculously quiet. I, I presume all of next week, 
Christmas yeah. Day on a Monday, Boxing Day on a Tuesday, nobody's going to come back to work on a Wednesday, are they? So people have the best part of two and a half weeks off work. Basically. Yeah. Some people do. Yeah. No, they're, they're, working, they're, working, they're working from home. Yeah. Oh, checking, yeah. Oh, checking, oh, yeah. Yeah. They're checking their emails. But it just slows down the rest of the economy. Lots of people are relying on people going into the office and right. you know, whatever business it may well be. But it just slows everything down and you know, the, the economy's not thriving as no. much as well it should. But I remember reading that this weekend coming, the Friday and Saturday, are going to be the biggest travelling days of all time. So maybe they're wrong about that. Maybe, maybe it's happened. Gone. Yeah, it's happened. Well, that's, that's possible. We've got the mirror now. Esther Ranson's daughter, we were just talking about Rebecca, uh, on the front page of the mirror, my mum should not have to die alone at Dignitas. So this story's not going away anywhere. And that's the thing. other thing that, that, as we were talking about that, you know, what you really want, ideally, is to die at home, surrounded by your family, or at least at home. You don't really want to die in a hospital. And you don't want to have to travel to another country yeah. on your own. I think for Dignitas, you do have to go on your own. I don't think you're allowed to have right. family members with you because then they, they might be implicated. Yes. So it, you are So they have a sort of a strategy for you. saying goodbye to your mother or father, and then they have to travel to Switzerland. Right. That can't be right. Yeah, that can't be right. Because just the act, as you say, of organising the trip is enough to make you some kind of co-conspirator, oh, yeah. I think, which is awful. A um, couple of stories about um, Gaza and Israel. Uh, front of the Guardian, pressure on Israel rises as Gaza deaths near 20,000. I'm still quite kind of uneasy about all these numbers that keep being quoted, which have come out of the Hamas Health Authority. And you kind of go... Everybody seems to have accepted that their numbers are right. And the argument is, well, they know, they've been right in the past, and so they must be right now. There is a very strange thing where people will be... They'll, they'll be like, there's a fight between Hamas and Israel. Yeah. But the palace... The, the Gaza authorities have said... Yeah. And it's like, well, who are, who are the Gaza... Yeah. Who are the Gaza authorities? The Gaza authorities are Hamas. Yeah. And you see this with the aid as well. You know, there's a real problem yeah, yeah. with the fact that aid has been starting to get into Gaza, and Hamas have been visibly stealing it. Stealing it, yeah. And they use that as patronage, and yet... It's very hard to report right. that because if you're an NGO that's on the ground in Gaza, you are on Hamas's suffering. Yes. Right? You're only there because they let you be yes. there. And that means that even if you're not an active propagandist, you are being managed and we do right. need to take all well, of Well, I heard somebody from life. Human Rights Watch the other day on, I think it was on the BBC, saying that, you know, there hasn't been any humanitarian aid coming into Gaza now for two weeks, which is entirely wrong because it's actually been going in every day. But whether or not it reaches them is another question because, because Hamas intercepts it. But when you hear somebody from an actual NGO, as you say, like Human Rights Watch, who are, you would think, a pretty reliable source, saying that, you think, well, that, you know, you're just not telling the truth. And that's never going to get us anywhere. US plans up, plan, draws up plan for strikes on Houthis, which is, of course this international coalition uh, which is going to try and protect the Red Sea. And that's obviously got the knock-on <laughs> effect of, we've heard that um, oil right. giant BP, um, they're going, you know, not using that, that route now. Um, so it's going to put up their mm. costs and you wonder whether it's going to put up the oil costs. So this is just another problem yeah. coming down the track, but it might be coming down the track a little bit sooner than we... Uh, than we thought. Yes. If you think about how much global shipping, do you remember the absolute chaos when that ship jammed the, the, the Suez Canal? Yeah. All of that shipping is on the is on the Red Sea route that goes past the Yemen. So yeah. It could potentially impact a vast amount right. of the global economy. Absolutely right. So we've got a quick look at the Daily Mail. They've got Kemi Badenoch talking about the teaching kids about gender story. Um, teaching children you can be born in the wrong body is harmful, she says. Um, along with an awful lot of other people who I think would agree with it. Absolutely. It should be illegal. I yeah. think we just need to keep this stuff out of schools, yeah. really. It's been quite a big so, debate all day today, hasn't it? It has, yeah. We were debating it yesterday. And it needs to be... Um, well, we just need to acknowledge how confusing and distressing yeah. that can be for children. Right. Um, 
This is an adult thing. This is this gender ideology thing. It's an yeah. adult thing. It's something right. that we've created, and um, we are going to look back on this time as a time of mm. utter madness when we just lost the plot completely. But to, to then put that on our children, mm. to on school children, yeah. there's a reason why you know this thing about socially transitioning is increasing and increasing exponentially. Mm. It's not that children are suddenly all deciding that they have no. gender dysphoria. It's that no, it's we a very are, trendy thing going it's on. It's trendy, yeah. and we are introducing it into schools, which seems utterly inappropriate to me. Yeah, it's been really difficult for any government. This was meant to be introduced in 2018, so you go back to when right. Theresa May was in right. charge, and they've they've sort of struggled to mm. come up with a, with a form of words to to get it through. And only now have they got this uh, this guidance. There's been a lot of debate internally in the yeah. in, in the, the guidance is a fudge anyway. What is the guidance? But also the guidance is non-binding, right? Yeah. Because they were told basically the DfE told Kemi Badnock and the government. If you want, if you want to go further than this, and you want this to be mandatory, you will have to pass legislation, and they didn't. Right. So what they've done is they've created this 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 guidance, and it it contains all of these things like, oh well, you shouldn't do this in this circumstance, right. and so on. But none of it's binding, right. which means that if you're a head teacher and you've got your your teachers on you and all the rest yeah. of it and activists, you can't fall back on the government guidance because the government guidance is only mm. advisory. No, exactly right, and and many of the people who are here kind of. Pr proposing that it's a good idea will say, well, of course, you know, you shouldn't be telling children what, that, that they can't self-identify. Well, why not? You know, I think you can tell them they can't self-identify no up until a certain point uh, when they're 16 or whatever the hell it is, you know? So I think that's why they've done as, as best they can to say parents are at the heart of every single decision and parents have to be brought, you know, along every, yeah. every step of the way. And that's probably the, the only fudge they could, yeah. they could really come Absolutely. up with. Absolutely. I like this one on the front of the Guardian. Uh, apparently, the lawyer who represented Michelle Moan has offered an unqualified apology uh, for incorrectly claiming um, that she was not connected with a firm that received <coughs> PPE contracts worth two hundred million quid. Now, how could that possibly happen? Moan's lawyers I were mean, in a really interesting position. I'm yeah, the they've, they've basically the been threatening to sue people for libel yeah. for telling the truth. The implication is because he's broken client confidentiality. Yeah. This. The implication is that Moan lied to her lawyers. Yes. I mean, this has been one of the most counterproductive media. Uh, campaigns in uh, history. Interview yeah, made I mean, the, the, Prince Andrew's the, interview looked like yeah. a, a but before you know, that, walk they, in the before park. That, they had that special straight to YouTube documentary, yeah. and it was like, okay, it was paid for by the company, and the the journalist had worked for her as a as a um, private investigator. Yeah. And documents in that show uh, suggested that she's under criminal investigation, yeah. bribery. Right. So it's just it's it's just absolutely extraordinary. It's going to live Amazing. on. You know there's a Streisand effect? Yeah. yeah. She tried to suppress a picture of her house, now yeah. everyone knows about it. Right. I think in the language of PR, there will now be like the moan effect. Yes. Where someone goes and does such a bad PR campaign mm. that the, the badness of the campaign becomes a story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have written worse stuff about her if she'd gone on the run and just disappeared and no, turned up is, in Belize right? or somewhere, you she know? She was really rich to begin yeah. with from her ultimo right. lingerie right? Yeah, yeah. This is a woman who was already a bra tycoon. Yeah, yeah. She had a lot of money. She didn't need millions, millions no. more. She the actually extra didn't 60, need it. But no, it's not hers. It's like her husband's just bringing it home to pay. But she's just protecting her That's family. What she said. I mean, amazing. <laughs> um, final one. Smash out to help out. Apparently, Rishi Sunak considered giving away debit cards with prepayments on them to everybody uh, during COVID. I mean, sorry. How much money does he think we should have? We talk um, about big state and trying to get intervening in every single sort of aspect of uh, yeah. you know, our lives. This is, you know, the, a further extension of right. that. And oh, I know. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Anyway, we're all out of time. So thank you to Emma. And thank you to Ryan. Thank you to Henry. Thanks. It's been brilliant. Um, very, very interesting conversations. Uh, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening and for calling in as well. I'll see you tomorrow at 9pm. Remember, you only get it on Talk TV.